everyone. Welcome to Leading With Your Gut, a passion project featuring individuals who share stories about embracing fear and having the courage to make intuitive gut decisions. The stories shared on this podcast are intended to empower a community of people who have these gut feelings but are unsure of what to do with them. Sometimes gut feelings are unexplainable. And oftentimes, these feelings may be the opposite desires that our friends and family want for us. But ultimately, it's fear that causes us to question our inner voices. My gut is telling me that many of us have had these experiences before. Through this podcast series, we will hear from courageous and vulnerable people who decided to embrace fear and listen to their inner intuitive selves when making life-altering decisions. I'm your host, Jenna Renee Shellman. Stay tuned for an interactive and creative lineup of powerful stories on leading with your gut. I am honored to have my childhood friend and social advocate Blythe Hill on the show today. Blythe is the founder of Dressember, an international nonprofit utilizing fashion and creativity to help end human trafficking. Blythe has dedicated the past decade to Dressember, raising millions of dollars to bring awareness of modern-day slavery through a creative style challenge, wearing a dress every day for the month of December. Dressember has become so big that thousands of people around the world, as well as major celebrities, participate every year. The 2019 campaign has already kicked off, but it's not too late for you to participate. At the end of this episode, be sure to visit Dressember.org to learn how you can get involved. I'm excited for Blythe to share the courageous story of her journey, the intuition she felt to make her dream a reality, and how her decisions created an impactful mission against human trafficking. Awesome. Did I I summarize it well? Did I miss anything? Um, I mean, that sounds great. Like you covered a lot. So okay, I'm good. happy with it. Good, good. Well, Blythe, welcome to the show. I have such a powerful story of how you kind of like got this whole nonprofit started. Um, and it's a very powerful story. And so I kind of want to like start from the beginning and, and um, you know, prior to December when you were, I believe you're working at Tully's and you're a fashion forecaster, right? And I think you were en- enrolled in grad school, right, for writing? Yeah, yeah, I did my my master's in English, um, and I was working at Tolly's Coffee. Mm-hmm. Well, and then Pete's Coffee. There's like That's a series right. of coffee shops. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I worked for a couple magazines, which closed um, oh. by the time I graduated. Yeah, with my master's, um, and then moved to LA and started working for a trend forecasting company. Got it. Okay. And during that time, you know, before Dressember, what were you? What did you want to do? Gosh, I had no idea. It was kind of terrifying. I, well, I always tell people like I, I did my bachelor's in English and I graduated, um, you know, you and I both graduated right into a recession. And I was like, mm. what do I do with 2009 in English? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the middle of a recession. So I like retreated into grad school, um, just kind of to buy myself time and also get some more credentials. Um, and really all I knew, like, I, I didn't really want to teach. I knew I loved writing and, um, like, you know, 
analytical reading and writing. And so I, I just went back, went back for it, but didn't really know. I kind of struggled when I was in grad school because it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, it's a lot of work. And I, I sort of envied the majority of people around me were, um, either teachers already or wanting to become teachers. And so I was envious of like, um, you know, having a clear vision and a direction that they're going in. Like, I didn't feel like I had that. I sort of felt like, well, I'm on this bridge, like this bridge is going somewhere, but I don't know where it's going. And Mm -hmm. so it was sometimes hard to, um, stay motivated, I guess. Like I definitely like stuck with it and finished and gave it my best, but it was, it was hard in the process, not knowing or not having like a clear sense of where I was going with Mm -hmm. it. Talk about Dressember. Um, this incredible nonprofit that you built from the ground. So let's go back to, this is prior to Dressember. What all of a sudden made you decide, you know, hey, I'm going to start this creative challenge and it's going to turn into this international nonprofit one day? Oh my gosh. Well, I definitely (laughs) didn't have that. (laughs) Yeah, I, um, oh my gosh, if I'm super honest, like I was just bored. I was in grad school and I had no time for any of my normal like creative outlets of like baking or crafting or sewing or you know a lot of like very hands-on things that are therapeutic to me um and I was like okay well I was just feeling like stifled like I've got to find something I can do that's fun and creative um and I thought okay well I have to get dressed every day so maybe that is my chance to be creative and um actually my first idea was to try wearing a scarf every day mm. I have an embarrassing number of silk scarves that my grandma left me like yeah. so many yeah and they're beautiful they're like vivid colors and just like awesome and I love puns and so I was like oh I'll do scarf timber oh that's um, cute yeah, <laughs> I have so many scarves too I actually like would like to participate in something like that yeah. Okay. And in <laughs> Seattle, you could totally do scarf timber, but uh-huh. in Southern California, like you lived up here, like it is still quite hot in September. So it would have turned into sweat timber pretty quickly and not in like a cute, like it's funny inspo way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, okay, well I ha- I love dresses. I have a lot of dresses. And, um, so I decided to wear, like try wearing a dress every day for a month. And that was 2009 and it was like, yeah, in November. And so I was like, I'm going to wear a dress every day in December. Oh, dress ember. Like, I love that. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and, I- and this first year when you did it in 2009, was it just you or were, did you like poke some of your friends to kind of like join in on the challenge too? I didn't ask anyone to join. Um, but I had a couple of coworkers at the magazine I worked at who joined in midway Um, so that was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, it was just like, I just thought of it as like this personal style challenge, like one time thing. Um, I don't know, just, you know, kind of a quirky idea that I had, um, and never, never thought it would go anywhere, never planned on doing it again. Um, and then the next year, some friends wanted to do it and they were like, let's like, are you doing that again? Like, we want to do that with you. And I was like, okay, like, 
let's do it. And so I did it with them and it was like, okay, that's probably the end of that. You know, like they got it out of their system. Um, and then the next year, my friend's friends wanted to do it. They had seen, they had seen my friends do it the year before and they're like, Oh, what it like, that's fun. Like I want to do that next year. And so, yeah, at that point I was like, Oh my gosh, like people who like, this isn't just my friends humoring me, like people who don't even know me personally are like wanting to do this. Like this idea is standing on its own. And how did, how did, how did, how did like people find out about this? Was it on, was it still on social media at this time? Not yet. So this is between 2009, 2011. I got Instagram in 2011. Um, so then it definitely like spread after that and we started using hashtags and stuff. But before that I had a blog on blogger, like blogspot, Mm -hmm. um, very small following, but you know, that did help spread it a little bit. And some people joined in that way. Um, I made like, I was like, well, how many people are doing this? Like I should find a way to like bring everyone together. So I made this like Flickr group. Do you remember Flickr? Of course I remember Flickr. (laughs) (laughs) I never used it, but I remember Flickr. (laughs) Yeah. I made like a Flickr group. Um, Yeah. So funny looking back now, that was like Instagram's competition or like, you know, what they were replacing. That's right. Yeah. Like photo, social media. Anyway. Um, so that was kind of it. So I really like when I decided to turn it into a campaign, I was like, I don't even know, like how many people are actually doing this? Like this could totally flop. Like the people who are doing this might not like that. I'm adding this super serious layer to it. Um, and what made you decide? Okay. So it's been two years. It's what, like 2011 now, 2012, 2011. Um, when I turned it, it was 2013 when I turned it into a campaign. Got it. 2013. Uh, you realize you have this following. How many people at this time were, were interested in doing December before the campaign? Um, see, that's where I had no idea. Cause I, I mean, I was, I wish I could go back and just look at like how many times people were using the hashtag. It was like, you know, in the hundreds at this point, okay. it's like hundreds of thousands. I think that people have used the December hashtag. Whoa. Um, Whoa. But I, yeah, I, I have, I had no way of knowing, like, I just was like, you know what, maybe this is like, this is my way to finally engage in this issue that I care about. Mm-hmm. And so like, I have to go for it. I have mm-hmm. to try. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hoped that enough people were also into it. Um, it seemed like there was some good energy and momentum behind December. And so I thought like, okay, let's sort of like use that for, for good, you know, like Mm -hmm. if we can harness that positive energy, like, um, and again, my biggest concern was like, are the people who are doing dress and we're going to like this, that I'm, that I'm making it like more serious in this way. Right. And what happened was like, um, I mean, I, I think they either did enough or (laughs) enough people who care about trafficking and had been looking for a way to engage and feeling the way that I felt, um, caught onto it and mm-hmm. joined in for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause that year that we had, um, 1200 people register mm. across the world. Wow. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you said that you have been passionate about this cause human trafficking since the early 2000s. Um, have you ever done anything with this cause prior to December? Not really, no. Um, 
yeah, I first heard about it in 2005. I like came across an article about sex trafficking in India and it just like stopped me in my tracks. Um, and I felt this like sense of urgency to do something that I had never felt before. And so then for the next several years, I tried to find a way in and it felt like, well, the only way for someone like me, who's not, you know, qualified, who's not a lawyer or a psychologist or a social worker, or, you know, some of these very specific, um, roles, the only way for someone like me to be involved is to donate. And I was a student at the time and I was like, right. okay, I can give like $5 a month, which like to anyone listening, that is still appreciated by any nonprofit. Um, small gifts really add up. Um, but at the time I was like, gosh, I want to do more than just donate. And, um, so I thought about like, okay, well, do I totally like reroute my career and my life towards one of these pathways? Cause I, f I felt that strongly about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but that never, that didn't really feel true to who I am. And mm. I didn't feel like a sense of deep peace about that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, for years, I just felt, felt this like frustration of how do I, how do I get involved in this issue? Like I am, I felt so much passion and yet so powerless. And the only thing I could do was just continue researching like okay well what organizations are doing something about this and where are they working and at that time it was still like the public awareness around the issue was like this is something that's happening in developing countries you know this is happening in India and Cambodia and Thailand and so it even felt hard to like like how do I volunteer for an organization that's like working primarily in Thailand or there just didn't seem like there were a lot of opportunities. And even, I mean, nowadays there are so many more opportunities and there are brands that give a portion of their proceeds to anti-trafficking work. And so even like shopping can, can make an impact, like shopping with specific brands. So it's changed a lot, which I feel really grateful for. Um, Cause yeah, for, from 2005 to really 2013 when I made the decision to align dress number with anti-trafficking, it just didn't feel like there was much that I could do as a normal person, you know, as a student. And right. And right. I completely understand. Um, about how many people are, um, in human trafficking or are sex slaves around the world, would you say? Yeah. So the, the conservative estimate right now is that 45 million people are, um, being trafficked around the world. And the majority of those are in labor trafficking, um, like 20, 25 million. And so then like 15 to 20 million is the estimate for sex trafficking mm. around okay. the world. What yeah. about, um, do you have any numbers for the United States? Um, yeah, the United States is a lot lower. Um, but I mean, it's still significant. It's in the like hundreds of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd have to look. I haven't looked super recently at like what the numbers are for the U.S. in total. Um, I know this like the FBI made this list of the top 13 cities for sex trafficking, and there are some of the obvious ones. Like California has three of them: San Francisco, mm. San Diego, and Los wow. Angeles. Wow. Uh, port cities um, or cities that are like Los Angeles 
is a tough one because it's so sprawled and so spread out that it's um, easy to kind of move a person around. Um, and there's so many different airports and ports and just ways of moving people mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is definitely an issue that I feel like um... – Maybe because it's not as prevalent in the United States. I feel like people don't talk about as much as they should. Mm. But it's a huge problem. Yeah, it is. Well, and I think, you know, there's still a lot of misinformation around it. I think people are primarily concerned, like when they do hear about trafficking in the U.S., they're like, oh, I've got to protect my my kids um, from this. And we hear the occasional story. I don't know if you ever came across that story a few years back of the woman shopping at Ikea who was convinced that these two men were trying to kidnap and traffic her small children. Um, or like the movie taken or like, there's just a lot of, I guess the stories we tend to hear about it are like kidnapping and abduction stories. Yeah. And the statistics are actually like, I mean, that happens, but it's, it's, um, not super common. Like what's more common is a trafficker will build a relationship with a child. And Mm. the majority of times in the U S that a traffic, a trafficker will seek out a girl in foster care or at a juvenile detention center or group home. Um, because they're, you know, not to be like crude, but it's low hanging fruit. Like girls who don't have, of like strong support system or consistency or the attention that they might um, crave, which is human nature, like the love and support um, that we all, the sense of belonging that we all crave. So a trafficker might sort of romance her and give her gifts and attention and step in as this like pseudo boyfriend father figure. And then at a certain point flip the switch where she's then, you know, forced to, um, to prostitute herself. Mm. And the reason it mat the reason pers- like social perception of the issue matters so much is because victims of trafficking are just like us in the, in the sense that like they are exposed to the same information that we are. And so if we are perpetuating this idea of like, oh, a trafficking victim is kidnapped, she is chained to a bed or locked in a room somewhere, um, she's beaten every day, like some of these things that like, those things do happen, but again, the like majority, uh, the, the main method, at least in the U.S., is more coercive and manipulative. It's like emotionally insidious because it's this sort of web of emotion and like, Oh, we'll just do this for me. Like, this is just how our relationship is. And actually there's statistic, a statistic that, um, right now, most survivors of trafficking in the U S um, they, they first identify self identify as victims of domestic violence. Um, where like, Oh, I'm in an abusive relationship and, Um, and then years later they might hear something about trafficking and like what it actually looks like and then self-identify like, oh, that happened to me. Um, Mm. so that's a problem. Yeah. So Um, it's almost, it's almost as if it's like a lot of the time it's like after the fact or after it happened. 
mm-hmm. that these people are realizing that they were essentially sex slaves to somebody else. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's what I have heard and come to understand, except in extreme cases where it's like very clearly, um, you know, when someone is shoved in a trunk and, and moved from city to city on a nightly or weekly basis, um, Mm. or, you know, there, there's horrific cases where it's like, if they don't even have the freedom to come and go or, um, I don't know. It does, it does look differently, but I think it's important to recognize like, well, sometimes it looks like this and, and, and we might actually come in contact with victims of trafficking on a daily basis and not realize it, um, because we're looking for something else. Yep. That's a really good point. Now, is it, it, you, you brought up women. Um, what about men or young boys? Are they victims as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it is predominantly an issue that affects women, but men and boys are definitely impacted um, both in labor trafficking and also in sex trafficking. Um, and there's actually, um, there's this terrifying kind of not new, but like new to me, <laughs> new ish to me issue of um, like online sextortion. So it's like extorting someone through, um, sexual material. Um, and boys, surprisingly, like boys and young men are, uh, more commonly the victims of sextortion. And so it's, um, from what I understand, like it can happen through, um, like a, a dating website or for boys, like the, like gaming sites where, um, someone poses as, either a girl or a boy that's like a peer to, you know, the same age group as, um, a kid who's using one of these sites and, um, you know, engages in like flirtation and like at some point convinces a child to send like a nude photo or, um, or something, you know, like often it's nude photo, but sometimes it could be video or just like a hacked camera, um, recording without them knowing. Um, and then they use that material to blackmail or extort the child. And there's so much shame that like, Oh my gosh, I like, I can't let anyone know that I did this or that like no one can see this. And so 60% of these kids meet these pedophiles is what they are. They're like, they're adults preying on minors. They 60% of these kids meet their, uh, exploiters in person to try to negotiate, like, don't show this to anyone. And from there, um, that's when a number of them are either like, um, extorted into like providing more materials or, and, or trafficked. Um, so that's pretty horrifying. That's frightening. uh, Yeah. A lot of, a lot of it is pretty horrifying and then a lot of it happens through social media these days and like through again, like online gaming. Um, so I was really shocked to hear that boys are more commonly the victims of like sextortion than girls are. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to talk about. And it's like, I have a kid now. Um, I have a, a son who's nearly five months old, but I already feel like time is going so fast and, he, before we know it, is going to be a teenager. And it's just so important, I think, like, 
it's important for parents to know that this stuff is happening and to be to be the ones talking to their kids like I want to talk to my son bear about this like before he ever you know has a smartphone or like you know, spends time on the internet by himself. Um, And also I want to be someone that like, okay, if something like that does happen, like if you do something that you're not proud of, um, come to me, you know, like I I don't want him to feel so overwhelmed by shame that he, um, he then sort of falls into this trap of like, oh, I have to meet this person and like convince them not to, not to share this with anyone. Like, I think it's important as parents to like, like okay I know what's going like I know what's out there I want you to know what's out there and I don't want you to ever feel ashamed like if you do something like you can always come to me and please do because the alternative is it can be pretty terrible um so the moment that you said to yourself I have hundreds of thousands of hashtags for dress number and um, I'm going to partner it now with this cause. Um, did you have, like, what made you decide this was the right moment? I'm jumping off the cliff. <laughs> like, here we go. Holy cow. Like, was it like, was it, was it something inside of you? Was it an external force? Was it someone, did someone tell you? Was it logistical? I mean, what, what was it? What made you decide to just, like, go for it? That this what you did was a huge, bold move. You went from here's this super creative fun challenge that like everyone likes and it's happy and it's fun and like so positive and you know to yeah let's like now um, partner it with an issue that is not necessarily that fun. It's actually it's it's sad. So I mean, what what made you decide to just go for it? You know, I, so in like 2011, which was the third year and people I didn't know were joining in, that's when I started thinking like, oh my gosh, maybe this could be more. And really like, I kind of sat on that for a couple of years. Cause I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if, if that could work or, um, you know, do I really want to risk like looking silly if it fails or mm-hmm. I kind of waffled about for a couple of years and I was like, Oh, well I still like, I need to research, you know, what organizations are out there and, um, and kind of like watch, watch those organizations for a couple of years. But that's kind of an excuse for like the fear that I felt. Yeah. Um, and then when I finally pulled the trigger, I was just like, you know, I've got to try like this, this thing is growing and, um, I felt like, yeah, it, it felt risky. It felt like I could look really dumb. Like I'm putting my reputation on the line. Like if this flops, then I will end up looking really silly. Like here's this girl who thinks that she can end modern day slavery by putting on a dress like how how stupid is that really and people I mean people some people actually wrote me and said as much they're like this is such a stupid idea (laughs) (laughs) uh okay well it seems to be working like we're raising some money Mm -hmm. um but yeah initially I had to just decide like well if there's a chance that I can help even one person then it is worth risking looking like a fool to a thousand people Mm-hmm. Um, and actually like wow. took a dry erase marker and wrote on my bathroom mirror, one is greater than a thousand. Ah. 
Um, yeah. And that, that kind of like, I just had to keep that posture during it. And luckily, like, you know, I set, I, I set what felt like a very bold, audacious goal to raise $25,000. Like that was terrifying to me to actually like tie the success to a number. And then, um, I said, luckily, because luckily we, we actually ended up raising that amount in three days. And so I didn't have to feel like the terror for very long where I was like, Oh, this is working. Like, and it's, it's exceeding my, my expectations. Like it's a much better idea than I realized. And, um, but I, I always think back on like kind of making that decision that like, okay, well, who am I doing this for? Am I doing this for my own reputation, my own like comfort and success? Or am I, am I really doing this because I care about the people who are caught in exploitation and horrific abuse um, and, you know, attempting to help even one of them? And, and does that make it worth it? And the answer was always yes. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you feel like it was, um, it was your intuition kind of like leading you to this? Like you said, you've been sitting on it for the past like years, right? So it, it was deep within your soul, right? Of like, okay, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea. You know, was it, was it, um, I, yeah, like was was it your gut? Was it your intuition? Was it your logistics? Was it like a a spiritual dream? Like was it a someone that just said Blythe, go push, like go? Mm. Yeah, I think it was probably a combination of a lot of things, and also just um, the reality of like, okay, this thing is growing like every year, which is like this is getting bigger and. I sort of felt like I've got a responsibility, like if I'm going to do something with this, yeah, it felt like, well, what am I going to do with this? Like, am I going to just, um, let it sit or am I going to, um, it almost felt like steward it in a way that like, like I can set this up to be something even bigger than it currently is, or even more impactful is a better word. Um, and so, yeah, like I just, I remember feeling really like, af- like afraid, um, like in retrospect, I think a lot of my like delaying, it was fear and insecurity. And then I had a friend who initially, like, she was the first one who said like, you should really think about turning this into a campaign or a fundraiser. And I was like, that's never going to work. you know. <laughs> yeah. so, so if anything, I kind of feel like my intuition was like, at that time kind of like fearful and yeah. kind of like yeah. doubtful and um or the, you know the doubts and the fears just so overpowered my intuition right. but then like right. things, the momentum just kind of kept building where uh-huh. i was like okay i have no choice like it feels irresponsible to not try to do something with this and and yeah i guess that was kind of like a spiritual conviction in mm-hmm. a way where like well maybe i have this opportunity and, and so what am I going to do with that? Um, and yeah, I guess that, you know, if intuition is this conversation with yourself and what like the truest part of yourself is telling you to do, then I guess, yeah, that a lot of that was sort of an intuitive journey as yeah. well as paying attention to that instead of the, the, the voices of fear and doubt. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, everything like, I mean, like you said, Blythe, like, or like I said earlier, you know, I, I view you as someone who is so incredibly courageous. 
Um, and I think about it, it was right before the 2013 dress number and you were up here in Seattle. I don't know if you remember this, but we were at my old apartment yeah. in Queen Anne and you were like, Jenna, I'm, I'm combining, you know, this with, with human trafficking. And, and I'm so worried because I need to rate 20, $25,000 in 31 days. And I'm so worried I'm never going to do it. And it was literally just like, and then like, and then what if this happens and this happens and, and this happens and it, it, like you were like, I could sense it. Like I can sense you were just like, you were literally just kind of like what Bonet Brown says, like you're literally just putting it all out there. Like your face was like face planted, like in the dirt, like here we go. Like here's everything. And I remember it was like the first few days, like all of a sudden you had surpassed $25,000. And, you know, it's like I, I, I felt so confident in you and I felt so confident in your conviction and your passion towards this that like you would at minimum, minimum hit $25,000. But, and I had a feeling you were going to exceed it, but I was blown out of the water that it was the first, the first few days. And, you know, that year you raised what, like 75,000? That was the first year? Oh, it was 165,000. In 31 days. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was wild. That was... Yeah, it felt like the wind was at my back or at our backs, you know? Like yeah. It's just like, oh my gosh, this has a life of its own. So the, the first year you did this, you know, you have this goal. It's a it's a strong goal. 25000 is a strong goal. You hit way above 100000 You know, after that, what happened? So after that, I was just, I was like, okay, this is, yeah, this is a much better idea than I realized. And so what am I going to do with it? And um, it was a scary thought, um, but I really felt like compelled towards like registering as a 501c3 and and like building an organization. Um, And so I just started taking steps in that direction and asking a lot, a lot of people for help along the way. And were you um, terrified to do that too? Like you are starting oh, yeah. a nonprofit. Like that is, <laughs> that is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what I was doing. What's that expression? Like we would never do half the things we do if we realized how much work they were. Absolutely. They are. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I, this is one thing I think I, you know, I would have, it was like, it was a lot of work, but it really was fulfilling too. It was mm. a labor of love and continues to be. Um, and so, yeah, it was like, okay, well, I need to file for 501c3. So like, I'd like to hire a lawyer to help me do that. Um, and so who knows a lawyer and was able to just like, I think I used Facebook for a lot of things where I was like, does anyone design websites or, you know, just like ask different things. Like, I don't know how to do these things. Or like, does anyone know an accountant and like found an awesome accountant that I've been working with for five years and hired before I hired myself. Um, so yeah, just kind of begin like, okay, well just, that's also when I started working with a coach actually. Cause I was like, I'm so overwhelmed. Like there's so many things I need to do. I don't know like what order to do them in and, um, like what to prioritize. And so she helped me really like prioritize those things and, and build out a sort of timeline of like, well, this needs to happen at this time so that this other thing can happen like this time and just kind of helped me take the things out of my head and put them into an actionable plan. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, coaching was and is an important, um, part of the work that I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, coaching is so incredibly powerful. Um, I'm definitely a big believer in, in, you know, whatever, whatever you put out into the universe, whether it's good or bad, it's going to come back at you. And you put out such, um, positivity out and then you at, you called out, you said, Hey, I need help. And like all of a sudden it came to you, right? It just kind of came. It's there. So, okay. So then, you know, dress number happened. You're getting the nonprofit going. You have a coach, you have an accountant. Um, what about, you know, other organizations? Did they start reaching out to you or people who, um, have like massive amounts of platforms? Like what happened in that regard? Um, you know, it took a while for anyone to really notice what we're doing, and and that's fine. It was just um, I did most of the outreach for the first several years, so I was like, um, you know, reaching out to brands. Like, you know, early on, um, I figured out the massive overlap between the apparel industry and labor trafficking. Um, and so it became an important part of what we do. Like, oh, we really need to educate people on like the clothes that they buy and the potential for slave labor behind our clothes and, and give people resources and brands they can feel good about shopping from. And so I started reaching out to some of those brands, um, to partner with us and, um, some, you know, some of them were like, oh, great, let's do it. And then a lot of them were like, oh, we're going to pass. Yeah. (laughs) it's always interesting because like every year we got bigger. And so some of those, like when I asked them the next year, they were like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's do this. Like, it was almost like we needed to prove like, you know, proof of concept a little bit, which Mm -hmm. I never felt bitter about. It was just interesting to see like at what level a brand was like, Oh yeah. Okay. This is, this is, this is something. (laughs) And I, I just always sort of approached it with this like curiosity and kind of a like, um, you know, I wonder if it's, I wonder if, if it's time yet, you know, like we don't have them yet, but like, I think next year or the, or the year after that, like we'll be able to partner. And then when we expanded our, our, um, organizational partnerships, um, yeah, the first several years I was reaching out to, well, we, we added our second partner, A21 in 2016 no 15 so like 2013 and 14 we just partnered with international justice mission and then we added a 21 in 2015 and it was because i reached out and began a relationship with them and a dialogue and then the same thing was true for our third partner mcmahon ryan in 2016 um and then after that we had like a flood of interest in like hey we want to partner like you're adding partners like we want to partner with you like receive receive funding and, and programmatic partnership um and so we weren't able, it took us a couple of years to really put an application process into place because we have a five person team. And so we just, for a while, we, there was no way for us to, um, like in an efficient way, process applications from a couple dozen or more organizations. And we're still not at the point where we can take unsolicited applications, um, but we at least can invite more and more uh, organizations to apply for a partnership. And then we have a process in place to vet them internally and externally. Um, uh, and then 
figure out whether or not we're going to partner with them. So right now we have 15 partners. Wow. Um, yeah, 13 of those are spread across the U.S. and then mm-hmm. two are international. Wow. Whew. So yeah. how did so how did that feel? Like you know you you're you're reaching out, you're doing outreach, you're starting dialogues with organizations with brands. You know you're hearing the word you know no 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 no, and now all of a sudden you know here's this application process process and people are knocking at your door <laughs> to get in. I mean how do, how does that feel? Yeah, it it felt inevitable in a way because again like. I guess like when I saw the success the very first year, I was just like, oh my gosh, like I, I just, I, I got it. I was like, this is going to raise millions. Like this is going to be really big. Yes. And, um, and I'm not someone who's like, you know, I, I guess you come across people who are confident about everything they do, whether or not things work. And I tend to be the opposite where I'm like, you know, just, I guess a little more like self-deprecating and insecure where I'm like, I don't, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'll try it. But then with December, I was like, this is working. And like, this is going to be huge. And so I just felt this new, um, like, yeah, I guess just the wind at our backs where like, this is, this is growing, this is working. And so, um, it wasn't a surprise and it, it isn't a surprise when organizations continue reaching out to be partners. Um, because we, um, we've grown so much and we have, um, a tremendous amount of resources that we can, um, we have the ability to partner with all these different organizations. Um, so it's, it's a really like, I'm, I'm just really grateful to be in this position because being able to partner with and fund strategic programs around the U S and around the world is a really incredible and happy position to be in, you know, to like be distributing funds. Um, it's amazing. And I feel like we have this like mutually grateful relationship with all of our partners where Mm -hmm. like, you know, they're grateful for, the the resources and the partnership and then we're grateful for the chance to be involved in what they're doing and Mm -hmm. and have an impact through the work that they're doing Mm -hmm. um so it's it's super incredible and I like almost every day I just feel like this like uh like I feel really humbled that like how do I get to do this you know how do I get to lead this incredible movement and this organization and this like global community of people who, um, are doing something so simple, like deceptively simple, but so powerful, um, to have such a significant impact. Like it mm-hmm. just, it feels amazing. And mm-hmm. it feels like somehow this would have happened with or without me. Interesting. I don't, yeah. I don't know that that's true or not, but like, yeah, it just feels like, well, be, because I sort of was willing to go out on a limb, um, like, I get to be part of this. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine, like, what if you decided, like, not to do this, you know, and you decided to, like, like be a writer or stay as a fashion forecaster? Like, do you ever think about that? Like, how you're, like, would your life be completely different or would you be, oh, ha- like, you know? I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it would be totally different. I don't, I have no idea, like, what I would be doing, Um and in fact, like, 
my perception on a lot of it has changed. Like, you know, I think for so long I wanted to be doing work that, um, you know, is significant to me and I feel a sense of purpose and like a mission, like a mission behind. And now that I'm doing that, like it is amazing. And again, I feel so like honored and humbled to get to do it and I wouldn't trade it for anything. But also like, I think we tend to like glamorize that idea that like, Oh, well, you know, that expression, like find, find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. Like that's <laughs> yep. absolutely not true. Like if anything, <laughs> you end up working more, you know, like yeah. cause you care so much. Right. But I just feel right. like, you know, um, sometimes my job is really incredible and life giving and I'm able to have like just incredible, um, conversations and interactions with these organizations and with survivors and and that's amazing but like for the most part my job is looking at a laptop <laughs> and answering emails and building reports and looking at analytics and um like it's not glamorous you mm -hmm. know it's a lot of drudgery mm -hmm. and so I think it's important that like um, I don't know. Yeah. I just feel like it's important to say, like, even when you find something you love to do, like, um, part, like work, work is just work as well, you know? Um, but not to say like, again, I don't want to discount, like when you really love what you're working towards, it feels different. Yep. Um, but it's still like, there are some days where I'm like, I don't want to go to work. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to do work. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to answer all these emails or, or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I want it to just be fun and, and glamorous. And, um, I, I feel lucky that I get those, you know, those moments or those days here and there, but a lot of the time it, it's just work and it, like from a physical perspective doesn't look that different than my like trend forecasting job, you know, like <laughs> I'm on the computer, yeah. I'm on the phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, but that's also, you know, my understanding of, of the role of an entrepreneur or the role of, you know, someone who is the founder of an organization, you know, there, there, there are areas where, yeah, you are, are out in the public and, and maybe it just kind of looks glamorous and, and you're socializing, and you're networking. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of legwork. There's so much yeah. legwork on the back end. But, you know, to your point, exactly what you said is that it's it's work and it feels like work, but it's different because it's it's toward towards a purpose that you really believe in versus like doing something where you don't really see the purpose or it's not meaningful to you. So it's, you know, that that's kind of how I view it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. So, um, how much money have you raised so far since 2013? Yeah. So let's see, we're coming up on our seventh campaign Ooh. and in the last, in the last several years, we've been able to raise seven and a half million. Uh, wow. Yeah. And, and, um, share with the audience, you know, how, where the funds, funds go. So people participate in Dress Summer and then where the funds go. Yeah, so we are structured like a foundation. So we partner with organizations around the world. Um, we have them apply and kind of lead the conversation on like where their needs are and where what their goals are and um, and what they have seen in their work over the last five plus years. Um, and so then we we 
structure a sort of collaborative approach of like, well, how can we come alongside you and support you in maintaining or, or ideally like growing and building this work. Um, and so our, our partnerships often like the organization doesn't change year to year, but our, the program that we're partnering with them towards does change. So an example is like IJM. So they were our first partner. They're kind of our flagship partner. And um, in 2018, we gave them a $1.3 million grant, which is the largest uh, programmatic grant we've ever given. And it uh, was also the most like strategic and comprehensive um, grant partnership we've ever entered into because it was to support their programs in Mumbai, India, um, where they combat sex trafficking. And so from a holistic perspective, we're, um, provide, we're resourcing them so that they can, um, do everything from education prevention and training to intervention and rescue and legal representation. And then like, judicial and law enforcement training and reform and then aftercare and um trauma therapy so it's like again like the most wow. comprehensive yeah uh program we've ever been able to partner okay. um, partner in and then we have other programs like um there's actually a seattle-based organization called best businesses ending slavery and trafficking mm-hmm. um and and they primarily train uh, individuals in the hospitality industry. Um, and our, so our desire in partnering with them and other, um, like primarily like training focused organizations is there's a statistic that the average, uh, survivor of trafficking could have had an intervention seven times before they actually did. Um, and that's through like doctor's appointments or, um, bus rides or airplane rides or Uber rides. Um, it's through, um, hotels or casinos. And so the idea is, well, if we can train people in roles that, um, probably come into contact with trafficking victims a lot more than they realize, um, what to look for and how to spot it. Um, and then how to safely partner with law enforcement to intervene, then we can speed up that intervention timeline. And we're seeing that happening, which That's is really great. exciting. And wow. so we're, yeah, we're expanding our partnership with them. But what's super interesting is they, you know, they'll do these um, surveys before and after a training. And at, at the beginning of the training, everyone says like, no, I've never seen trafficking. Like I have never, I've never seen this. And then after a training session, um, they all say like, Oh my gosh, like actually, like I didn't realize like these things are the markers of trafficking. Like I was looking for something totally different and I have seen this and, and sometimes they feel incredible like guilt that they didn't do anything about the times that they've seen it in the past. But the idea is like, okay, well now, you know, what it is and how to spot it again it's this like dispelling misinformation and giving an accurate portrayal of like this is what it actually looks like when you come into contact with it and here's how to then go about um bringing in law enforcement in a way that isn't going to damage the the overall like hotel reputation Mm -hmm. as well so it's advantageous for both sides 
Um, that sounds like yeah. a that sounds like a pretty um, like w- well needed um, organization. It's called Best B E S T. It's in Seattle. Yeah, yeah, they're okay. awesome. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, so those are just two of our fifteen partners that um, we really are trying to dismantle trafficking from every angle in mm-hmm. every part of the world. So. Mm-hmm yeah, our, our partnerships and our programs will just continue to expand as we, as we are able to grow. And what I love is, um, you know, the majority of our supporters are in the U S and so that's why we took this approach to first kind of partner with all these regional organizations around the U S. Um, and so what I like is people can say like, okay, through my, engagement with and support of Dress Ember, I'm able to have both a local and an international impact. And so that continues to be the goal as we expand our partnerships and programs. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So for those people who um, are, you know, unfamiliar with Dress Ember and would like to participate this year, um, is it, is it only women that can do it? Is it, is it men? How does the, how does the whole creative challenge work? What do they do? Yeah, it's men and women. So anyone can um, commit to wearing either a dress or a tie uh, during the month of December. Um, So every day during the month of December. And you can register and create your own campaign page in a matter of like two minutes on our website. You just go to dressember.org and then press become an advocate. Um, and it'll guide you through setting up your page, setting a goal. We give you like suggested goal amounts if you want to tie your goal to a specific impact. Um, and then just as important as committing to the challenge and registering and creating your page is then telling everyone in your life that you're doing it. You know, like you want people to know, like, I'm doing this thing. And then also telling them like, why you care about the issue, you know, why is it personal for you? And, um, and then invite them to help you hit the goal that you've set. And does it start? Um, it starts right at December 1st and it goes through the 31st. Um, yeah, well, we actually, we actually run the campaign from October 1st to January 31st. Ah. Um, we allow some, some time in the front, to um, allow people time to set up their page and create a team and, and kind of like begin the momentum and strategizing uh, their approach. Um, and then we keep it open through January 31st because January is National Human Trafficking Awareness Month in oh, the U.S. Okay. Yeah. So we want to keep people engaged then. Um, but then the actual like style challenge is in December. Okay. So we see people do it a number of ways where like you can absolutely start fundraising as early as now mm-hmm. and, um, and people will donate. And then there are people who are like going to wait and see that you actually do it and donate on the last day of December. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, if you kind of keep asking people in January, they're like, Oh yeah, it's a new tax year and, or I forgot before. Yeah. So I'll donate now or I'll donate again. Cause it's a new tax year. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, participants, are they, are they mostly, uh, just based on what I've seen on social media, I've seen mostly women participate, but, um, you know, you share that, you know, yes, men can participate in like wear ties. How important is it for men to get involved in this issue? Oh, it's, it's hugely important. You know, I think there's this, um, this misconception that because trafficking primarily 
affects women and girls, that it's like a women's issue. And that's just not true. You know, men absolutely have a hand in perpetuating this issue and the demand uh, for um, for uh, sex slavery in particular. And so it's important that men uh, step up and, you know, show solidarity that they like stand for, for more than this, you know, that they stand for the dignity of women and girls. Um, and that communicates a lot to everyone around them. Um, you know, as much as I like would love to think or say otherwise, like in the world we live in, a man's voice still outweighs a woman's, you know, like there is, this power and privilege that a man has, and especially a white man says yeah. or does something, yep. people notice in a yep. way that they don't notice as much necessarily. And this is a, you know, huge generalization, but it's why it's so important that men mm-hmm. join in. Um, it says a lot on a personal mm-hmm. level, again, what they stand for and who they are. And then it also says mm-hmm. a lot on a sort of collective level in like encouraging other people to step up. So yeah, I am thrilled to see mm-hmm. an increasing number of men join in. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's wonderful. I I feel the same way as you. As you know, this is this is an issue that we want to combat combat together. And and yeah, maybe the numbers show that it is tailored more towards women, yes. but it is so important that men are involved. Ah, well, Blythe. Um, yeah. As we're coming to the end of this of this interview, um, I feel so good talking to you. My heart is my heart is open, and um, I feel so empowered by by you and everything you've done, and and your mission and your impact, and um, the fact that you you know really went <laughs> against what you know maybe you thought was logistical, and, and you kind of just listened to yourself and jumped off that cliff. And um, I feel like your stout your story is empowering for people in so many ways. One, because you you you're you're following what you should be doing in life, and two, you're really tying it to a cause that is so meaningful and purposeful. And, and like what you said too, you are so humble and so happy to wake up and do something that is this impactful for people. I want to thank Blythe again for being on the show. Her story reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from Marie Forleo's newest book, Everything is Figureoutable. Marie says that fear is just a GPS for where our soul really wants to go. It is evident in Blythe's success and purpose that her soul is where it needs to be. Interested in participating in Dressember this year? Go to dressember.org to register and make sure to follow the handle on Instagram. If you want to learn more about Blythe's story and human trafficking, check out her captivating TEDx talk. I'm Jenna Renee Shellman. Thank you for listening to Leading With Your Gut. <laughs>